Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. With me today is Richard Reinch. He is director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies and AWC Family Foundation Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. More at heritage.org. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on your program. Heritage is a pretty well-known name in conservative circles and think tank circles. But for those who perhaps don't know as much as they should know, tell us a little bit about Heritage and your role in the organization. The Heritage Foundation uh, was founded um, right before the Reagan administration started. And it was designed to be sort of the, um, you know, reflection formation point of conservatism in Washington, D.C. The, the Heritage Foundation played a huge role in shaping the domestic policy of the Reagan administration and has been, you know, from that time on heavily engaged in Washington at the level of policy, politics, and and also forming ideas and trying to shape minds uh, around ideas uh, that reflect politics and policy of our constitutional order. That is to say, uh, limited government, small government, the rule of law, not the rule of bureaucracy or the rule of judges, and trying to build, uh, you know, a strong and healthy civil society and also trying to build an America of uh, strong families and, uh, uh, you know, strong conservative, uh, you know, virtue uh, that can support a society of free people, uh, a free and virtuous people. So that's, you know, it's been Heritage's mission. It's, you know, the think tank has, uh, it's, it's large, it spans many policy areas, uh, many focal points, and, you know, it attempts now to uh, ensure that when, when Republicans govern that what they're doing reflects, uh, you know, uh, a conservative posture. And when, you know, Democrats are controlling, we're obviously trying to inform the, the public debate uh, as best we can with our ideas. And I'm the director of the Simon Center uh, for American Studies, and we're trying to ensure that, you know, the, the American founding, the principles of our founding of our Constitution are also uh, kept alive and circulating widely uh, in, in public debate. Richard, you spend some of your time, of course, uh, focusing on free markets and free economies around the world. You wrote something a while ago that made me think, which is, that, that's a good thing. A question you asked is, essentially, does America still believe in itself as this economic power with the ability to, to lift all boats in the country? Do, do we still believe in the power of the American economy? Yeah, that, that's really a great question. Uh, it's a question that I'm wrestling with right now. A, a really good friend of mine who is a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Samuel Gregg, has uh, just written a book, The Next American Economy, trying to answer this question. And you know, there's a lot there's a lot to suggest that America right now is sort of sliding imperceptibly almost into a social 
democratic economy and a social democratic welfare state. We have uh, an economy that is riddled with government interventions that a lot of cronyism. I mean, when you think about, I think it's eight of the ten wealthiest counties in the United States are in northern Virginia. That is to say, bordering Washington, D.C., or close to it. You know there is a lot of uh, favors that have been sought and that have been granted in Washington, D.C., uh, to companies. And, you know, what that leads to is a different kind of economy. It's not a free market economy. It's not an entrepreneurial economy. It's it's really something else. And it, it means that capital and business talent and business decisions are not taking the form of, you know, what's going to what's gonna, uh, generate highest returns on capital, what's going to create new businesses, products, and services to serve uh, the American consumer, but it's what can serve the bureaucracy. And that's throughout our economy. And, you know, we think about the, we've had a lot of decisions made by our elites over the last two decades that have seemed to, you know, undermine what people think about a free economy or they come to associate markets with corruption and they're sort of open strangely to a lot of government intervention, I think. I you know, think about the 2008 financial crisis mm-hmm. uh, where people made bad decisions, oftentimes incentivized by government, which had a lot of dismal economic consequences. And I think what people took from that was this is an insider game that I'm shut out from. We've got you know the huge numbers of American men not working, but we've got you know, tremendous growth and welfare. There's something that a lot of people don't understand is sort of transfer payments have grown dramatically, uh, really since Reagan administration. That's that's what I mean when I think we're sliding into social sort of the social democratic mindset. So there's there's tremendous wind in the face of those trying to articulate the principles of a free market economy and and why America needs it. And you know we face a lot of these problems. And on top of that, you know, now free trade is sort of associated, I think, in people's minds with China and losing millions of manufacturing jobs. And I think that sort of, it, it sort of evokes, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the premises that were oversold to America, that trade would make China look like us, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, which obviously hasn't happened. And so we've got to think about, you know, trying to argue that, that the, you know, the, really the best form of uh, populism, the best form of democracy, is a limited government and a very strong market that reflects the values and tastes of consumers. And that's what's going to lead to growth and uh, to economic growth and more work and more opportunities. Now I think we're sliding into just sort of a permanent transfer payment state and a lot of cronyist-style corruption and so we're just we're going to have an economy that's sort of stalled out or increasingly looks like a European economy. And I think that's that's really our struggle right now. I want to come back to those uh, questions about spending and, and transfer payments in a little bit. This doubt, though, about whether America's uh, Americans still believe in this economy, does part of that doubt come from at least the perception uh, in some minds that People are excluded from opportunity, the opportunity for advancement, the opportunity to get ahead. This is where 
uh, at least in part, the concept of equity comes in, that, that people need uh, yeah. people need assistance to get to the same starting point, to have the same opportunities. Is the American economy still as open to all as it has been in the past and as it should be? Well, I, I think that when you look at, I mean, there's one story that's very prevalent that, you know, people don't experience wage gains anymore. And, you know, there was a, there was a period uh, in, in our economy where it seemed like unskilled workers, particularly male unskilled workers, didn't see, you know, sort of steady gains year over year in income growth. Um, but you, you put that aside, and then we had the financial crisis. And that lingered, and we had low growth for years after the financial crisis. But then you think, you know, we had... You know, and, and of course, this is the momentum stopped with you know this inflation and the fallout from the way we we managed COVID. But you had before before uh, COVID in 2020, job openings galore in the American economy, and and openings in mining, uh, construction, manufacturing, you know, all sorts of production that, you know, paid solid middle-class wages. They were begging for workers, and they weren't there. You know, I, I think it's, at one level, in my mind, it's hard to say there aren't economic opportunities available. I, I think they do exist. Uh, I mean, I think that where I live in Indiana, there were two job openings for every job seeker. Mm-hmm. That's, that's certainly a very favorable climate. I, I think where things break down is we have an economy for young workers that is tailored towards getting all of them into higher education, you know, like 100% of them. And, you know, maybe 60% will go through some form of higher education and will drop out. They'll have debt. They will have probably a waste of their time. And now they've got to go into the economy, and they're going in with debt and the lack of skills. I, I think that's one, you know, huge opportunity would be to ensure young workers have the skills they need and the education they need, which may not be a four-year degree. That would be incredibly helpful. So, I, you know, the thing about equity, you know, equity is, is a never-ending claim mm-hmm. by the left on our government institutions, on our private sector, and it says, you know, America is never good enough. And in particular, sort of what you think of as our intermediate institutions, those are never good enough. Those are always rife with power, domination, corruption. And what you really need is an incredibly powerful state redistributing resources. And I'm afraid, you know, if we listen to a voice like Ibram Kendi actively discriminating against whites and Asians and redistributing those opportunities to other racial minorities and to the LGBTQ continuum. And, you know, that's, that's the point of equity. It's not equality under law but a very powerful government, almost almost a racialist, socialist government redistributing resources. But it's hard, even you, know, you look at wage gains for various racial minorities, those are abundant and have been happening now. You know, where things tend to fall down is certain, you know, smaller parts of the economy, smaller parts of the job market haven't seen dramatic wage growth, and, you know, there's work to be done there, but I don't think it indicts the entire economy and, and our entire country and or should support 
you know, even further growth in government than we've already experienced. Senator Marco Rubio said a few years ago in, in 2018 that uh, what was once a, a path to a stable and prosperous life in America has since been closed off. You address the wage gain question a little bit, but I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, you know, what he might be thinking of is this idea of a single income household that is able to sort of get ahead 30, 35 years in retirement, stable pension, those sorts of things. Is that model gone, and is it a problem that the economy has to address? If you read a scholar like Alan Carlson, a family policy scholar, you know, America's had sort of a, a range of policies that supported a single-family income, family wage. And, you know, that was like post-World War II through the 1960s. It really, really becomes impossible to maintain after the Civil Rights Act because women are added to the protected classes. And, you know, it's, that, that's when we first had this idea of protected classes in federal law. And so, you know, women begin to enter the workforce. There's also, you know, dramatic gains, uh, wealth gains, new technology, things like that. There's just increased need for employment. And, and women enter the workforce. And so that those policies just sort of become superfluous. You know, America has a manufacturing sector that's incredibly robust, but we have a manufacturing sector that evolved uh, in in accordance with the needs of our economy and you know, the productive needs of our economy. And this actually happens throughout every advanced Western, you know, democratic capitalist country, as even countries like Germany or France, with very uh, with, with industrial policies, you might say, have also seen a fall off in that sort of wage mindset. There's also undoubtedly a social story here, the sexual revolution, and there's also, you know, the way in which uh, you know, the federal government responded to that with, say, great society programs as well. That you know, All this sort of worked together. And, you know, also we shouldn't, you know, just, you know, the, the sheer fact that a lot of families choose to be dual income. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it's it's necessarily about this sort of dire story that what well, we have to be to support ourselves. I think people like the growth, the, the, the more increased economic opportunities from having both spouses work. So, I, I, you know, the question, I think, for these calls for a return or a reinvigoration of that, you know, domestic family model of, of, of economics is, do most families in America actually want that? Mm. Uh, some do. And, you know, but they're the ones who are, real, who are motivated, you know, usually conservatively, religiously, for various reasons of their own, to, to be a single-income single household. So I, I think that it's probably not workable absent dramatic interventions uh, by the government, which will probably prove to be counterproductive. I think, you know, what would be better would be Let's have a robust economy with a lot of opportunities, and we'll let people live, you know, according to their desires uh, for how they want to organize their family. What I see in, you know, polling data, you see in a lot of families with children is, you know, one spouse, you know, typically the, the mother, will pull back for a time from work and then will reenter or, you know, something like that. I think that's probably where we want to be. Uh, but my sense is that that somehow you're going to bring back a lot of these jobs and they're going to be robust middle-class jobs and you're going to get 
of single family, single income households. Uh, it just, I, I don't see how that works for all sorts of reasons that I've tried to articulate. You know, it's also, you know, just sort of thinking about, you know, regions of the country, cities of the country, which, you know, had to change because of global capitalism. And many of them, this is sort of a story that Rubio doesn't talk about. A lot of these places have recovered. They changed. They made themselves, a, well, Pittsburgh would be one. Mm-hmm. Spartanburg, South Carolina would be one. That made themselves attractive to capital coming in from other parts of the country, other parts of the world, and, you know, took off again, became economically vibrant again. There are also places like Youngstown, Ohio, which didn't do that, and places that tried to, uh, you know, rely on government to re-engineer their economy, and those places have remained stagnant or continued to decline. And, I, you know, I think, you know, we probably want to go with the former model, not not the latter, and uh, there's a lot of success out there that hasn't been documented. You can look at certain parts of America and say, yeah, that looks pretty bad, but there's also a lot of places, even more places, from what I've read, if you look at the fallout of the last 50 years, that have succeeded, and um, I would move in that direction. Talking with Richard Reinschus, director of the Beat Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies and a WC Family Foundation fellow at the Heritage Foundation here on the Future of Freedom podcast, you uh, alluded to dramatic government intervention in the last answer, and I want to go in that direction. You, you've written a couple of times recently uh, about the size of the federal government and the power that the government has now, uh, the national government, because of the amount of spending it does. You say the government has, through spending powers, usurped much of the governing authority for the republic. It is so large and encompassing that it swallows the ability of states to be self-governing and accountable to its citizens. How has the size and growth and spending power of the national federal government helped to bring government farther away from the people? The amount of spending the federal government engages in, which completely exceeds the productive capacity of our economy. So this is why our deficits continue to grow. And then if you look at our transfer payments, our entitlements, uh, you know, that's, you know, I, I, if you, I think total, the, the total amount we're in for right now is over $70 trillion. So there's, this, there's something absurd about this. And it only sort, sort of makes sense because we're the world's reserve currency, we're able basically to borrow on global markets uh, to help support the dollar uh, to, to somehow still fund all of this. And, you know, certain, sooner or later, there's gonna, the bill will come due, and our economy will experience a severe reversal, and a lot of people are going to be hurting. I think undoubtedly it's the case the need to fund that federal debt takes a bite out of the economy. You know, we, we forget what is seen and what is not seen. Inevitably, it's hitting us in capital investment that could go into productive sectors of the economy. Then you have, you know, the spending itself of the federal government um, is consumption. It's not investment. By definition, it's consumption, which is the extermination of value. And they spend all over the place. And they spend in a lot of local areas rather than that spending being tied to general concerns of defense, of various needs that the national government might have. They're moved into all sorts of local areas of spending as well. And so you've got state governments. Most state governments, 20 to 30 percent of their budget is tied to federal government spending. 
Uh, so it fosters irresponsibility at the level of states also. It's, it's sort of just a, it's an, it's an unaccountable way in which our federal government proceeds. And it's, you know, the question is, how do you even begin to scale that back? Mm-hmm. I'm, and it's, it's hard. And, and how do you even articulate that? You know, we can articulate tax cuts as conservatives, but pulling back spending is hard. And, you know, even trying to have a conversation about entitlement reform, which entitlements have to be reformed at sooner or later. And, or it's going to happen at a moment, not of our choosing. It'd be very painful. So that's, that's sort of the situation we're in. And all, all I can do and, uh, you know, as many others is just try to make the arguments. But ultimately, it's about responsibility and discipline, which seem to be in short order in today's America. You also argue that we, as citizens, uh, no longer govern ourselves in an open and competitive fashion versus other states, the states as laboratories of democracy, so to speak. But we do see, we have seen somewhat recently this uh, phenomenon of people uh, m- uh, voting with their feet, uh, people moving from yeah. bluer states like Illinois and New York and heading to more red states like Florida and Texas. Uh, are you encouraged that people are at least taking action in their lives to get themselves surrounded yeah, by a government that is more sympathetic to their points of view? Yes, no, that that is one of you know the great movement of Americans that really, you know, it, it had been going on for a while, but it really, uh, it, it seemed to go to a higher level during the Trump administration when uh, the tax reform was passed. And you know, the ability of high-income earners in like New York or New Jersey or Maryland, uh, for example, were now capped at the amount of uh, liabilities they could write off on their state and local taxes mm-hmm. to $10,000. Many of these people being very high-income earners, and this is how they sort of made it work, living in these high-tax states. And that, that ended. And so that, you, know, you saw the beginning of that exodus to Florida. And then COVID responses took it to an even higher level. Uh, and it just seems as these people have moved, and I think there's sort of this feedback loop. They're telling their family and friends who are still in California, you know, wow, like my home state of Tennessee, it's like, wow, you can actually afford a home in Tennessee. Um, and you can actually, you know, be who you are as, as, as a conservative or as a religious person and not, not feel like you're under, the, under public threat or under threat from other people in, the state, in these states. And, you know, the cost of living and taxation and all of that just works favorably. And it's the story of business as well. The business is moving to these states. Uh, I mean, I was uh, you know, just talking with someone who works for Alliance Bernstein that relocated from New Jersey to Nashville, Tennessee, in the last few years. Um, that sort of movement of people and capital is very positive. And these are states, actual governments governing according to conservative principles and it's succeeding it's working as though it's tangible evidence that we can point to and now you know by just sort of thinking ahead what's the what's the counter strike going to be <laughs> from the federal government uh to try and stop this from happening to try and stop this competitive federalism uh but i it seems to me it's it's going to be hard to stop and it's, it's a very positive development You also say it's somewhat of a double-edged sword in that members of Congress now no longer focus their attention on what should be the most pressing objectives of the national government and instead are focused on 
bringing dollars back home to, 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 to the local community yeah. or finding grants that can be had by the local community. What would you like to see members of Congress focus on instead of that, those local concerns? Well, could you have a constitutional amendment you know, that, in effect, stops local spending because it you know, ultimately is in violation of Article One, Section 8, and is sort of spending for local concerns and uh, is no, no longer tied to the needs of the federal government itself. You, you could argue these are the needs of the federal government, but I think the more accurate read is you know, this is about graft, uh, staying in office, rewarding local constituents or, you know, local people. Um, so could you, yeah, could you actually have a constitutional amendment that would ensure spending has to go for truly national concerns? Uh, that's, you know, something, uh, you know, James Buckley wrote about uh, a number of years ago. Uh, it, it would require a constitutional amendment given decisions by the Supreme Court on spending. So that, that would be one thing. Um, also, making it easier uh, to actually fund campaigns, uh, uh, paradoxically, I think would be a good thing. Instead of politicians spending a lot of time raising money, they could actually spend time thinking about, you know, actually being a better senator hmm. or better congressional representative. That would, that would be good as well, uh, because now they've got to raise money in smaller chunks. Yeah, no, th- those things would be good. But, you know, it's ultimately, you know, do you have a political class that wants to be constitutional and wants, wants a federal government that understands itself to be in uh, not a partnership, but to have a certain limited role uh, to govern the country well? Because, you know, ultimately now they've erected a bureaucracy mm-hmm. that is largely the most important part of the government. And that bureaucracy has neutered Congress, or Congress has created it and allowed itself to be neutered. And if, if you want to govern constitutionally, that part of the government, the executive bureaucracy, has to be firmly disciplined and made smaller. And we've got to have rule by, you know, rule by deliberation within Congress, uh, which we don't have that right now either. We have a Congress that's very weak and that governs uh, strictly party-line votes. And... You know, it's, it's largely, it's, you know, incredibly top-down without a lot of discussion and deliberation. And, and that's sort of not the way it was set up. It's supposed to be the, one of the, the most powerful part of government, but the part of government that brings together a lot of uh, a lot of voices, interests, and concerns. And so you kind of get government of the people, by the people, for the people, which doesn't happen now. So I think that, you know, it's, it's largely a question of discipline and reinvigoration of what it means to be a constitutional people. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not optimistic that's going to happen anytime soon. Richard Reinch hosts a podcast for Heritage called Defining Conservatism. Why is it important that we are clear on, on these terms, on these arguments, on what people's uh, opinions are? Why do we need that clarity when we have these conversations? Well, we need that clarity because, you know, there's, there's a minority of us in this country who understand the formation and the foundation of our Constitution, what's going to make our country successful in terms of fostering a climate of freedom and virtue, and what a government looks like that fosters that, what a civil society looks like, 
um, you know, what, what our country was and what it can be again, because nothing is permanently lost. These are perennial truths. They can be clouded over, ignored, discarded, but they are, you know, our country is rooted in this idea of a human nature, uh, of a truth, of legislating in accordance with human flourishing and prosperity and freedom. So we have to be the ones who bring these things out and articulate them very clearly for people who, in many cases, have never heard them and or have heard them dismissed. It's, you know, we're not getting a lot of help from our education system. Uh, so that's, that's something also that we've got to be very focused on as well. But, you know, that's, that's the reason why is it's, it's going to be up to conservatives in America to keep this, these arguments, debates, and ideas going, if not us too. Final question for Richard Reinsch here on the Future of Freedom podcast. Let's look at the future, toward the future. Where do you see some of the battle lines being drawn for arguments about freedom and liberty that we'll be having over the next five years or so? I think undoubtedly, you know, religious freedom, and uh, not just religious freedom for individuals, but for institutions, will remain a perennial concern. I I think the focus on can we have an economy um, that is free of you know this this constant crony interventionist mindset, which is now also in the form of this ESG movement and trying to tie corporations to social justice concerns rather than turning a profit, uh, and, um, uh, and also this focus on critical race theory and woke politics and trying to basically corrupt many institutions in American life with a mindset of the past is evil and we've got to start over at year one on behalf of every group under the sun and sort of victimize our past and also, you know, insist that one group in America, white heterosexual males, that they bear sole responsibility for every problem in America. And, you know, America sort of has a permanent debt that it has to pay uh, through all sorts of policies that will inhibit, attack human freedom, attack economic prosperity, economic freedom. And the goal will be to undermine the foundations of our country so that I think that's maybe the is the most dramatic battle we face, and I, I don't, you know, even if it looks like we're succeeding in one election victory, mm-hmm. uh, I think the battle goes on until until they are finally defeated, because this is sort of a spiritual call of the left that we've got to face. Richard Ryan, she is director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies and a WC Family Foundation fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He hosts the Defining Conservatism podcast. And you can find more at heritage.org. Richard, thanks so much for joining us here on the Future of Freedom podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. I'm Scott Bertram. For more episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network.